the story of two dental hygienists from opposite sides of the world who became friends because they realized their professional lives were so in sync. One in Australia and one in America, both exuding their high passion for high-level patient care, both pushing back on legacy dentistry. If you are ready to revolutionize the practice of dental hygiene through science and innovation, join us as we are Disrupting Dentistry. Oh, and welcome to another episode of the Disrupting Dentistry podcast. You've got Melissa Obrodka flying solo today. My girl Tabitha is on holiday so uh, she will be back. The, the dream team will be back with you soon. But if you are new here, welcome. And if you are a disruptor, welcome back. We've got a great episode for you today. We have um, an amazing dental hygienist and somebody that I'm honored to call my friend, Tiffany Dillon from Scaling Up Innovations. Tiff and I met quite a few years ago at one of our implant care practitioner courses. And you know, when you meet somebody and you're just like having those me too moments and you feel this person's energy and you know, especially in your profession, like she's good people and she's got her shit together and she is really trying to move this profession forward. So that was my moment meeting Tiffany. I was like, this girl is fire and I love her. So Tiff, welcome. Thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you guys so much for having me. I feel so honored. I listen to your podcast all the time. And then to be a guest, I just feel like I'm a VIP, but in a different way. So thank you guys so much for having me. Appreciate it. Of course. Of course you are a VIP, 100%. So <laughs> then you know our format from being a listener that we're always going to ask you, all of our guests, where we start like with your foundation. So you just graduated high school. You're like, what do I do next? How did you, how did 17 year old Tiffany or 18 year old Tiffany get to dentistry? So it's funny that you say that. So when I was a kid, I actually didn't want to be a hygienist. Um, my very first like aha moments of like remembering like what I wanted to be as a profession definitely was a chef. Like I loved cooking so much. And I think that's because my grandmother helped raise me and she had the education of a third grade level. And so she didn't go past that. She was like farm girl. That's what she did. So everything that she knew, she taught me, which was in the kitchen. So I loved making like homemade rolls, homemade biscuits, chicken and dumplings. Like that was like my love. And my mom was like, okay, Divini, you're not going to make any money. Like, you're going to be on your feet in the kitchen all day. Like, this isn't a really great idea of, like, a future. So you have to pick something different. So I asked my grandma what I should be. And so she said, you always take care of me. You'd be a great nurse. And so from there, I was like, okay. But at that time, my sister's 11 years younger than me. And so I had to go to all her doctor's appointments with my mom and I would turn white as a ghost every time she had to get her blood drawn to the point where the doctors stopped drawing blood and made me sit down because they were like, we don't want two patients. And I was like, mom, I don't think I can be a nurse. Like this whole needle thing isn't my thing, you know? And so I was like, okay, what could I be as a nurse in healthcare, but not a nurse? And that's when dental hygienist arose in like my um, idea of like a career field. And at this time, anesthesia was not a thing. <laughs> so I was like, yes, this is going to be great. Right. Like dentist did anesthesia. Hygienist did not. Right. 
And so um, I was, I wouldn't say like a late eruptor, but I didn't go to hygiene school until I was 21 because I couldn't figure out like what I wanted to do. I went to community college first. Then um, at the time I was, you know, unfortunately, fortunately dating a guy and he was from Boston. And so he really wanted to move back home. And that was like me uplifting my whole life. Like everything I knew was in Maryland. So I applied to dental hygiene school knowing nothing. I was a first generation um, college student in my family and I just applied and I was, I knew nothing about college besides community college and like nothing. So applied. Um, I got accepted. I got accepted on Thursday and school started on Monday. Oh my <laughs> <So> goodness. <laughs> everything over the weekend. Um, I think I had met my boyfriend at the time's family once or twice. Um, and I lived there with them for six months by myself. <laughs> wow. It was like, and I had a puppy or pu- my dog who I still have now. He, like he was like six months old. And so I just kind of winged it. And so if I would have known better, I would have rerouted things a little bit differently. Um, but I was accepted into the Mount Ida dental hygiene program, RIP Mount Ida. Um, because that was now taken over by Regis College. They still have their dental hygiene program. Um, and so I went there, I did my first year of prerequisites, and then afterwards I um, went straight to hygiene school for two years. Um, so that's kind of how my journey of dental hygiene started. Um, it's kind of odd because in my family, like look at my background, Prevention is not a thing. Like people in my family still to this day, they only go to the doctor, the dentist, if there's a problem. They only go if they need a tooth injected. There is no prevention. So I'm kind of like the staple of change, which is I'm super happy for um, because I see that in my family now. And I'm just so thankful with, again, my sister being 11 years younger than me. Now she just graduated with her master's degree. And like, she's on top of like prevention. So it's fun to watch how you can make a difference, like even in your own family circle of making that, be the first person to make the change. So that's kind I of love that. journey with dental hygiene. Yeah. That's a, a, a wicked, crazy journey, girl. Like getting accepted <laughs> on Thursday and like moving your whole life in a, a weekend. It was pretty wild, I will say. And I always look back and I'm just like, I think everybody has like a touch of anxiety in certain situations, but like reliving that, I'm like, I don't know if I could do that again. I guess yeah. I was just young and I was just like, let's do it. I mean, I just, I don't have so much stuff now. Like, I don't know how yeah. to mess it up. <laughs> it's just great. I don't know. Yeah. Things happen in certain phases of life for a reason, right? Exactly. So that's pretty amazing. And I love the fact that you say about prevention and how you're able to introduce a different mindset within your family, because I feel like that's something that we get to do with thousands of families, with all of the different patients that we see, right? Like the ability to just implant into their mindset that, you know, my profession is all about prevention. Like I can prevent you from having dental disease. So if you can follow these instructions and kind of adapt that mindset, we can work really, really well together. Um, So that's an opportunity for you and I know, because we believe so much in the oral systemic health link and so many of our listeners do too. Um, 
But, you know, for other clinicians out there who might not really get that, and maybe they're trapped into that, like, jaw janitor, tooth scraper mindset, how would you share with them, like, a little bit about your journey and how you've made these changes? I mean, I would say that you have to do what you are really passionate about. And I think that's what makes not just dentistry, but medicine, medicine, right? Because you have all these different backgrounds of people. Even when you look at doctors and hygienists, um, even in the hygiene world, like we, we're not all just um, have backgrounds in just dental hygiene. Like we might think that, of course, in some level, we have all that same education, but perhaps somebody might have been a biology major prior or whatever the major may be. And it's the same thing in medicine. And so you take those, I guess, areas of passion and you put that into your your career field. And so for us, it's prevention. So for me, I think when you have a um, family event that has happened and impacts your life so personally, you have no choice if in my situation, which we can go into detail, um, when it has impacted your entire life and your children's lives, that's just your, your fire to what you want to, I guess, um, I don't even know the word for it. It's just like, you want to just like put all of that passion, like into other people and try to get them to see what you wish you saw. So that way their families aren't affected. Um, it's, it's, Something you can't explain to people unless they've been in a similar situation. And no two situations are ever going to be the same. But I can tell you that everybody in this entire world has been impacted in some way, shape, or form of something. And so if that touches you, to spread the awareness to other families, your patients, your other healthcare providers, your coworkers, that's important because we don't know what we don't know. And we're not going to learn everything from a CE course. A lot of it, your expertise is like hands-on, right? Like we know this research is not always like a printed article, journal article. We're doing our own research all the time. And so you'll have patients that don't fit the puzzle pieces. There might not ever be a journal article written about this person. So it's important to go off with what you know and what you've seen in real life um, because it's going to take 20 plus years sometimes to implement anything into medicine or dentistry. And we, we know that, right? So that's kind of yeah. I guess, like how my passion is just, it just drives you to just advocate um, and bring awareness to other people. Definitely. So um, I know a little bit about your story just from you and I knowing each other and, and watching, you know, what you've been sharing in social media. Mm-hmm. Would you mind sharing your story and your niche within dental hygiene and dentistry with the audience? Yeah, no problem. So um, my niche kind of, um, I would say, I definitely went to hygiene school, like I said, when I was 21. So as a first-generation college student, I can have like very, very clear, vivid memories of me sitting in English 101 class, which was my first semester of college, and my phone is ringing. Now, mind you, I'm a little bit older, and we, I, this was a Razor phone uh, at this point, <laughs> and my phone is like 
vibrating and I'm like okay look at my phone it's like my mom is calling so I silence it and then I'm like you know listening to my English 101 teacher professor going on um and then my mom calls again and the phone is vibrating I'm like okay and then I you know dismiss it I'm like she knows I'm in school like I don't know why she's calling me I don't know what's going on right so I finish my class I'm in the hallway there's like 100 people in the hallway I call my mom like mom what's going on like, you know I'm in class, like, why are you calling? And her exact words were, you need to come home right away um, and I'll talk to you when you get here. And I'm like, this is really weird. And I'm gonna be full disclosure, my mom knows this story too, but the night before I was at my friend's house and we all had like six packs smearing off ice, like not doing what we're supposed to. And I'm like, oh my God, maybe my mom found out that this is what we were doing and like, I'm in trouble. Like, I'm in big trouble. Like, I call my best friend, I'm like, girl, did your mom talk to my mom? Like, what's happening? She's like, no, no, that that didn't happen. I was like, okay. So I'm like, okay, if I'm in trouble, my dad will, will tell me. Like, he was like my best bud. So yeah. I'm driving home, I call my dad, dad doesn't answer. And so he gonna get, Okay, Tiff. And so um, I call again and I get his voicemail. And then I pull up to our, our road, like the street that we lived on. And I can't even tell you. There must have been like a hundred cars at our house. And so I knew something was wrong. And I didn't know like what's going on. And so my mom just like ran into my arms, like full blown, like huge hug and said, your daddy died today. And I was like, oh, like it was just so bad. Like I never had anybody in my family pass away. I was 18. I didn't even understand death. Like it wasn't something that like I knew about and I didn't understand. I think until like. I would say, like, until, like, you're 30, like, you're not, like, a real adult. Like, not to, like, downgrade anything, but, like, your responsibilities, like, yeah. all of those things, like, your family, like, what it's like to live without a spouse, like, all these things that, like, you just don't get. So that's kind of how, I guess, like, my passion came about. Um, I somehow hustled through, um dental hygiene school I don't even know how like you can literally ask all my family and friends and for the longest time I thought that I was like oh wow like my dad died at 40 like that's gonna be me and for the first part after that I think everybody can relate like when you've lost somebody that you're really close to you have all of these stages of um grief that you go through and so like you're angry and you like question your vision you do all of those steps of grief. And so for me, I was like, okay, well, I'm going to live my life just like my dad. And I would go out and we would drink and we would smoke and we would do traditional things that unsupervised young adults would do, right? So I didn't really care. I was like, this is it. Like, it's fine. I mean, somehow I got through dental hygiene school and then I think that's when I, once I graduated and took like my dental hygiene oath, it was like, 
wow, I'm a provider and people look up to me. And it was like something changed. I don't know what it was. But then once I had the upper hand of like helping other people, um, I think that's what made my lifestyle change. Um, And I, I, you know, went to the gym every single day and like ate healthier. Like I was at McDonald's before two o'clock in the morning. (laughs) Like I didn't care. I didn't know any better. This is how my family lived. And like you had to be that, that change. Um, and so I think a lot of people who, you know, know me personally in the profession, the one thing that I can say is like, um, you know, just like the blood pressure is like the most important thing that you could possibly do in your chair, in my perspective. Um, you know, everybody has their own, right? Susan Cotton is going to say oral cancer screening. Like right. everybody has their thing and that's fine. And if we all collaborate and say, okay, this is a standard of care, do these things, you could potentially save someone's life. And so I bring that up because my um, my dad actually went to the dentist six months prior to um, – is a cardiovascular event. So my dad passed away from, um, at that time we were using massive heart attack, right? And so now what I know is not a massive heart attack. My dad probably had cardiovascular disease and nobody diagnosed it. He never went to the doctor. He didn't have CBC blood tests done, never went to a cardiologist. And if you look at my lineage, it's like 100% true. You don't even need documentation. Um, and I can go into details about that too. But um, so anyway, he went to the dentist six months prior. He had SRP. There was no blood pressure taken. And so not saying that that causes, but when you see like the heavy correlation of somebody who has severe periodontal disease, my dad smoked since he was 16. Now he's 40, right? I think I can't even remember my parents really going to the dentist. So that is just like a huge indicator. And Yes, we know like our patients who smoke and have unhealthy, you know, lifestyles and behaviors, they're not going to change the first time you say something. But it's important that you say something because it shows that you care as a provider. And maybe you are that person that is going to push them to make that change. Um, It's not up to us to decide like, oh, they smoke. They've always been a smoker. Like they have to decide on their own. Like it's nice to give them a little bit of a nudge that is, I would say, within reason. Right. So you just ask, are you ready to quit? Can can we have this conversation today? And if not, that's fine. When you're ready, I'm here. I can give you some tips and tricks to like help you through it. But if not, that's okay too. Like that's their decision. That's their health. Um, But you can't just not say anything. Right. So to me, like that was like the biggest, like that was the first thing that once I became a hygienist, I'm not, I call my mom, my mom, we have to get his dental records. And she was like, why? And I was like, because I want to see they took his blood pressure. Like, I was so upset. And so it is a big HIPAA thing. But and I called the dentist. And the dentist sent us the wrong patient's chart, um, actually. <laughs> so now I know. Wow. <laughs> so you have to be like, totally, it's the craziest thing. Um, so, but anyway, so to me, like, that is, like, the most important um, factor, like, in treating patients like the standard of care you have to follow the set rules that we were taught as foundational dental hygienists you can't skip those right you can polish first last i don't care what you do but 
the foundational things, you ju- you can't skip those. Um, that is so important. I think it makes us true healthcare providers because then you have some providers taking blood pressure, some providers not taking blood pressure, some people doing oral cancer screening. Half my patients, if I don't tell them I'm doing an oral cancer, they don't know what I'm doing. Like, right. they have no idea. So everybody right. knows when you're taking blood pressure, I'm taking blood pressure. Um, but that's basically kind of like what gave me my passion, my fuel, my fire, still to this day. Um, it's so important for so many different reasons. Like, just from like, like I said, like losing your family member is, is something that people can't speak to until it's happened to you. Um, and it's not fun, right? Like, I have to watch my mom go through this whole stage of like being a widow. It's awful. Um, and it just like, it always is with you. You can't get rid of it. Like, it's always going to be with you. For me, like now as a pregnant mommy, it's like, okay, my grand, my baby is never going to be able to meet their grandfather. Like, I didn't have anybody walk me down the aisle at my wedding. Like, these are huge things like in your life that if you can help other people, like, why would you not? You know, and I think we've we've kind of as a community and I think as a nation, truthfully, and I hope that all not all communities are like this. But my perspective, we've gotten away from this community feel. And it's like we don't bring apple pies to our neighbors anymore. Like I know it's like off on another tangent, but it's like all for one, one for all. And we have this mindset. But you have to get back to like your community, like if your community is healthier, then like individuals will be healthier. Right. So kind of looking more broad spectrum. And that's how like I also went um, and got my degree in public health just because I didn't want to treat just individual people. I wanted like the whole community to be healthy. And so um, I went through that too. And then once COVID hit, I um, had so much time on my hands, right? Eight weeks. that <laughs> 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 um, I always wanted to be a CPR instructor. And so I have friends that are CPR instructors. Um, and so I was like, wow, I really want to do that. But something was holding me back where I was like, I don't feel validated as a CPR instructor unless I've done CPR. Like, I know that sounds crazy to some people and they're like, Tiffany, what are you doing? But I had the time I had, like, it was like literally perfect timing for me because it was COVID was happening. I didn't have anything going on. And I was like, I want to help out during the pandemic, but we're not considered quote healthcare providers in this situation right. as like frontline right. provider. And I was like, well, then how do I become one? So I signed up at that point to be an EMT and literally help with the pandemic. In hindsight, I would get hands-on experience with um, all these medical emergencies. And when I say like it's meant to be, like it was literally meant to be. My enti- my first shift that I went on as EMT, I can't remember what time it was. It was definitely night nighttime, nine o'clock maybe, ten o'clock. And you'll you'll find if anybody else is interested in being EMT, all of the important things happen either when people are waking up or when people are going to sleep, because that's when you check on people, right? And so. Um, you know, when the whole community wakes up, it's like six oh six thirty. It's like, okay, all the sirens are going off because that's when everybody's waking up. And the same thing at night. Oh, so it's like between nine and eleven, everything's going on. And so um we had a cardiac arrest um call was my first call I ever went on as an EMT. 
And I didn't know what to expect because you get a lot of hands-on training. You do have like classroom training. It's like hygiene school. You do a lot of book right. work and like when you need to work through that. And then a lot of the other things you have to get checked off on is hands-on. And so um, I just remember this was like full-blown COVID. I'm in not only like my EMT pants, like, <laughs> but I have like a gown on. I have an N95 mask on. I have a respirator. Uh, I didn't even have an N95. It was res- full-on respirator. Wow. Um, yeah. And so gloves, goggles, <laughs> like the whole thing, like science <laughs> goggles. Not even like, I mean, it was horrible. It was so hot. Yes. And like, I'm like, my job was to carry the Lucas in which is the device that helps resuscitate and do like the actual compressions. And so I'll never forget, but that was my first call. And so I'm, I was happy that I was there and that I got to witness and I was able to do chest compressions um, because unfortunately that patient was, I didn't know that there were standards. Like you can't have a patient that's too large or too small. You won't be able to use the Lucas on them. Um, so you have to actually do physical hand um, chest compressions. Um, and our supervisor just asked everybody, if you know CPR, just get in the line um, because we just would rotate every two minutes. And so in the real world, you do CPR for 21 minutes. Um, so you don't stop. There's no, you know, that it's 21 minutes or nothing. So it was a, an experience for me that – I will always, you know, unfortunately see, I think that patient when I close my eyes and I'm like, oh, that's the first patient I ever did CPR. You'll always remember those things. Um, And and part of me, I know this is going to sound probably disheartening, but like part of me, this patient was very, very sick. And I was like, I wouldn't want them to wake back up. You know, like it was not, you don't get to see all good things, right? And you don't always have to get to be the lifesaver all the time. And so then I always thought back to like my dad. And so his situation, the day of his, um, that he had cardiac arrest, um, he was fortunate enough to work with his best friend that they grew up together. And so his best friend was an EMT. Um, and so during work in the morning at some point, my, mom, my dad had gone up to his boss and said, I don't feel well. I want to go home. Um, and my dad was hands-on guy. He worked for Howard County Highways in Maryland, um, did like all the blacktop paving, snow removal. Like he was just like very raw hands-on guy, chainsaw, that kind of thing. Um, and for my dad to say that he didn't feel good, that's not, you know, they tough it out. Like that's just his yeah, culture. Just construction his, guys. Yeah, yeah. They just like, unless they're in pain or like they need, like then they'll say something. So, um, you know, they, he was like, I don't feel good. I, I really like to go home. And it's like a blessing in disguise. And so his boss said, if you don't feel good at lunch still, like, then you can go home. Well, at lunchtime is when my dad had cardiac arrest. Um, so um, I obviously wasn't there, but my dad's best friend was there eating lunch with him. And my dad collapsed. And my dad's last words, because I will say that my dad was like a a comedian. Like, I don't know how else to explain it. Like everything was a joke to him unless it was like super serious. And so his last words were, don't cry at my funeral. And so he didn't know that he was going to die, but that's what he was joking to his best friend, like as he's doing chest compressions. And so 
it was just like I don't know how to explain it but like even to like my dad's best friend like he has to live with this memory like I know what it's like to do CPR on a patient now I don't know them personally or anything but like my dad's best friend has to live with that his rest of his life you know that like he didn't um that he didn't save my dad and I had to tell him like it's not your fault like you did the best you can you can saying that your dad was a comedian and his last words were not to cry at my funeral to his best friend yeah and so like you know the I think the hard part is like it's so much more than it's than just like cardiac arrest like my dad's best friend has to live with that scenario that he was attempting to revive my dad and it didn't work right and it doesn't work now that now and I think that is also why like I was like so adamant about being an EMT I needed to know and I learned so much about specifically cardiovascular like hands-on um like for example you know, like one out of 15 people are going to survive cardiac arrest. Like this is not astronomical amounts of numbers. Like people, like it sounds crazy, but you don't have, you have to have the timing, right? You have to have an AED. You have to know, you know, have to know how to use it appropriately. You have to get to a hospital that has a cath lab because not every hospital has a cath lab. So it's like all of these things I learned about like our emergency system and how that is set up and every single county is different and every single state is different. But to know those things is really important. Um, I mean, I told my mom, like, mom, you have to know, like, especially as people are aging, I'm like, you need to know how close and if you're moving, like how far away are you from, you know, EMS? Because that's important, especially if you have underlying health problems, conditions, you need to be close to people that can help transport you, right? So um, those were things that, like, I, in hindsight, like, yeah, I'm, like, I look back on, I was like, okay, where did my dad work? Where was the closest emergency system? Like, where was the closest firehouse rescue station? Where, how far from there was the hospital? Did it have a cath lab? I did all that research, like, afterwards, because I was like, I need to know. I need to have, like, you need it, yeah. You know, and so yeah, yeah. for me, like that just made everything like more closure um, because I've had relatives in my family like pass away, you know, after my dad, my dad was the first funeral I ever went to. And so I didn't even want to go. I know it sounds sad, but it's like, I was like, so in a fog, but I was like, this isn't happening. Like, this is not true. Um, yeah. But then when you look at my family lineage, my um, paternal, my dad's um, dad, my grandfather, he had two heart attacks and then my grandmother had one. So it's so important for like my generation to change things. And so um, I tried for a really, really long time to get my primary care doctor to um, recommend me to go to a cardiologist. And they were like, oh, you're healthy. You have a great lifestyle and everything. And But um, finally, I told them I was attempting, you know, to get pregnant at some point after we got married. And my OBGYN was the doctor that was like, you need to go see a cardiologist before you get pregnant. Because my dad passed away at 40. He's super young. Yeah. I'm 36. I'm like, yeah. this is crazy. Like, I can't even imagine yeah. having four years of my life left. I got so much to do, girl. <laughs> like, there's no <laughs> way. Like, I don't want to go, yeah. right? So right. But we don't I'm all think like that. And if you don't know what you don't know, like, you just live, right? And so... 
um, I think that's changed my lifestyle, changed, you know, my husband's lifestyle, just having like, you know, family, things like that. But, um, yeah, so my, my OBGYN was like, you need to go and just make sure because when someone passes away and they're that, they're that young, you don't know if they had an underlying condition, um, you know, could have had a misdiagnosis of something. So I just wanted to be sure that that was happening. So I will say that anybody that needs to go to a cardiology of family history, you just have to press that on your primary care doctor. And if you're, in, I mean, I know insurance is terrible for most people, and that's really what dictates our treatment, right? Like no one's going to go pay for an echocardiogram out of pocket. Like they're just not going to. But if you have good valid reason and you can build your case, which you have to advocate for yourself, you can. So this year I had EKG as a baseline. I had an echocardiogram and then I actually had a coronary artery screening. So they were like, you look great. And I was like, perfect. Now I will say too, always take that information with a grain of salt because that's just like one time. That's like one glimpse of time. Right. So you can have a stress test today and you can have a cardiac event tomorrow because it's only for that time. So that's the hard part about cardiovascular disease because you don't get to see or cardiovascular events that you don't get to see things all all the time. Like it could be fine today, not tomorrow. Where periodontal disease isn't like that. Right. It's not like. Right. Today you're fine, but tomorrow your tooth came out. Like we all know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, we would have probably a lot more people in the chair if that were to happen, right? Like, oh, my tooth is in my hand now, and I was like chewing yesterday, and everything's yeah. great. And you and I know because we both read the Beat the Heart Attack gene that it specifically shows that a stress test is not the proper indicator of cardiovascular health. And there's so much evidence, and they cite this in the book of people who pass stress tests and then had heart attack shortly after that. So um, I would strongly recommend, and I know Tabitha and I have talked about this before, but this book is a huge asset for any dental hygienist just because of the closely webbed link of periodontal disease and cardiovascular disease. And they were the ones, Drs. Bale and Donine, that did that white paper to give us causal evidence of periodontal pathogens uh, creating a uh, risk for heart attack and stroke, doubling the risk for heart attack and stroke. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And and it's funny you say it because like right after I read that book, I actually went to my primary care doctor at that time. And um, I forget what the gene is called now. It's like APO something. APO yeah, something. Right. Yeah. Um, and I was like, oh, test me for this. Like, this is like strong causal evidence, like my whole family, right? Like on my dad's side, like everybody. Um. And my doctor was like, oh, well, your insurance won't cover that. And I was like, okay, I only have to have genetic testing done once, right? So it's, it's not like you have to have it done consecutive, you know, over and over. Right. Your genes aren't going to change no. so, like, from that perspective. Yeah. So a lot of times I think, and it's like this in dentistry too, and it's just medicine in general, but like everybody needs to shift out of insurance. And let the patients make the decision. Like, give them all the evidence that you have and educate them and let them make a decision. Like, I honestly don't care as long as I know. You don't know what anybody's financial situation is. Um, And, like, you don't have to make the decision for them, but just educate them. And this came up. I could not agree. This came up, like, two two weeks ago. I think I, I was at office. And I was like, oh, this person has like a really deep groove, you know, pit and fissure on a premolar. I think it was 15. I was like, why aren't we doing a sealant? They're like, oh, insurance doesn't cover sealant on, on premolars. I was like, okay. 
So what does that matter? Like you still offer it and then make, let them make the decision. How much is a cavity? Right. How much is that? Like how much is it feeling when they have to get a cat? You know, I'm like, ah. Exactly. Oh, exactly. I mean, they, that coat, what they have to pay on a, on a, a sealant is probably far less than their copay exactly. on a filling exactly. done. Right. And then now we've already diseased and lost tooth structure. Yep. So there's, there's so much that's like we, we, and dental, I mean, all of medicine is a broken system. We, we know that. Right. But like as prevention specialists, that's what we are. And in healthcare, how many prevention specialists are out there? Right. I see on Instagram now there's a, there's a whole like wellness community and biohacking community of people that are trying to help others become like take control of their health. Yeah. And yeah that's a role that dental hygienists play huge. Like, I think it's a huge role that we play. And I think that what we need to understand too, and step into this role more is that we see our patients generally more than any other practitioner. And that's, and like you said, a hundred percent, you're absolutely right. Like for, and I thought about what you said, like with prevention. And so I, I, I look back at like everybody that is in medicine and I'm like, okay, who else could we compare ourselves to? Right. And I'm like, okay, Massage therapy, I think that's another great profession that's underutilized. Mm-hmm. And people only Absolutely. go to a massage therapist if they're in pain. When they're hurt. Right? Mm-hmm. So don't do that. Hygienist, don't do that. Go. Just go. Every two weeks, your body is under so much like manipulation and like torque and like and you have to go. Don't go and wait till you're in pain. Like that's definitely one. Um, I would say chiropractor, if you, but there's like some people believe and some people don't believe, whatever you believe. Yes. If you do go there, like they, you know, I think that is another really good profession that pe- that's underutilized that could be very preventative. Um, physical therapy, people only go when they're hurt. Like, why? Like, we should be going to physical therapy all the time. Like, right? We're, like, we're, we're all like one sided. Um, and yeah. I would say nutritionist. Those are like the four mm-hmm. people that I could like come up with. But again, you only get to talk to a nutritionist that's actually a true nutritionist because there's so many people out there that aren't, that claim right. they are, um, unless you have like, again, you have a cardiac event, you will be talking to a dietitian or a nutritionist, but it's not before, you know, and it's like, yeah. when you sit down with your doctors and even if you have these risk factors, they're just like, eat a healthy diet. Like nobody goes over a food journal with you. Like nobody goes over what is healthy? What is healthy for me? Right? Everybody's so different that nobody goes over these lifestyle modifications that could prevent cardiovascular disease. They just say it. Like they just say, "Okay, make sure you exercise." Like not everybody knows how to exercise. Not everybody knows nope. what's best for them. They don't know what their VO2 max is and like all of these things that are so important. You work out too. So, you know, this. Yes. like you have your heart rate has to be at a certain level for you to burn calories and fat. And some people think, you know, walking. And our TDEE, yeah. like people don't even know what your total energy daily expenditure is. I said that backwards. Totally. Total daily energy expenditure. expenditure T D E E. Yeah, it's a it's early in the morning, people, and it's I'm trying to get the words. But out. it's, it's um, so but true. Yeah. So I just feel like if if we were more focused on those type of prevention strategies, I mean, even chair side, like you said, we get to see our patients two, four, definitely hygiene department two to four times a year, right? If they're staying on top of protocol, and but then you include you know doctor side too. So if they're coming back for restorative work, it could be up to six times, seven, eight, nine. You don't know how many times you're seeing your patients 
a year. So, and then you think about if you're taking blood pressure every single one of those visits, you'll 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 find something if it's changed. And I've had every single excuse in the chair. I think at this point for somebody that has been having you know high blood pressure. That it's like, oh, I just had coffee. I just had espresso. I just took pre-workout. I just finished working out. I was in traffic on the way here. Like you hear all of these things. But in addition, your body should be able to regulate your blood pressure, right? So you get to have like, you know, some kind of stressful event. It's going to regulate itself back to normal. And if anything, your pulse should be high, right? So like your blood pressure shouldn't like your pulse might be high if you were stressed in a situation but it should be also become regulated so I am a huge believer you take your blood pressure it's high take it again in five minutes it should come down that's why we have that standard like five minutes chill out let's take it again um I get a big pushback on wrist cuffs I just went to the OBGYN and they took my blood pressure on a wrist cuff was the first provider that's ever done that besides dental office and I was really shocked that I was like wow Okay, so this is kind of cool, but at the same time, like knowing what I know, it's somewhat inappropriate to always do a brachial artery in the dental office, and it's better to have a reading than no reading, and your radial artery will always be a little bit higher than your brachial artery. So with that being said, however, when you look at the normal range, your patient should never be in like a hypertensive crisis on a radial artery. Right. So that is going to be a true hypertensive crisis. Like your numbers don't jump that much. I'm talking like maybe 10. So if you normally like 120 over 80, it could be 130 over 90. Right. But that doesn't put us always to like hypertensive crisis mode and you need to leave and we need to call EMS or whatever's going on. So that leads me into this question because a lot of things that I've heard over the years as to why offices don't do blood pressure is because it always comes back to production, right? So it's like, well, what happens if the patient is too high that day? So my question to you is, what is your cutoff number? Mm-hmm. How do you discuss this with your doctor so that, you know, when something like this is to occur in your chair, you already kind of have an SOP or a standard operating procedure in place yeah. and you execute that and there's no like icky feelings or pushback about the patient not getting treatment that day? So my biggest go-to is always to go to the American Heart Association. And I will say that I was like so thankful um, it depends on how your operatory is set up, but a lot of operatories are set up where you have a computer screen now, especially the more modern offices or a TV screen where you can like pull over like a website um, to educate your patients. I always, always, always have that up if a patient does not have a normal blood pressure reading and I show them where they're at. So you guys, you can go onto the American Heart Association and it'll say like blood pressure category, normal, elevated high blood pressure stage one, two, and then hypertensive crisis. So I'm telling patients like anything over, you know, 120 and then the bottom number being 80, the diastolic, you have, you should have this screen pulled up because it puts it into them. And I'll even love the color scheme, right? So um, it puts it in perspective for the patient. Hey, this is where I'm at. Um, I always ask them, like, do you have a primary care doctor? When did you see your primary care doctor last? How often are you going? Do you have family history? Like, these are all really good questions to know. And then you can always share, like, if you have a personal story like me, like, I always share my personal story. I'm just like, listen, this is really important. Like, I know, like, you have a stressful job, and 
I can tell you, my dad worked three jobs, like super stressed, right? Like primary care provider for us financially, your work, your overload, your stress will kill you. Like I tell patients super bluntly, I've seen it personally firsthand. It happens all the time. I've had patients who've come in who've had previous heart attacks that have survived. And I ask them, like, can you tell me more about your story? And I learned from them. And they're like, Tiffany, I had to change my job. I was a CEO. Mm-hmm. I can't do this. You have so much stress and overload. And we see this in even dentistry, right? The doctors yeah. have so much stress on them. And I tell my, I had a doctor I worked for one time and I didn't, nobody told me. I walked, I only worked on a Saturday and I walked in and I was like, like full blown, like medical emergency alert kicked in. And I was like, I need to call 911. I walked up front, like nonchalantly, doctor was doing exam and um, office manager was like, what's going on? And I was like, the doctor's having a stroke. And she was like, no, no, no. She says Bell's palsy. And I'm like, oh, why didn't you guys tell me this? Because like the entire face was not working. And I was like, oh my gosh, what's happening? Like that was like, I just knew, I was like, oh gosh, I need to call. And they were like, no, no, no. It's been like that for a week. And I was only there on Saturday. So no one had told me. You had, yeah, right. I was like totally blindsided. And I was like, oh my gosh, this should be something you tell me because I thought we were having a emergency right now. Um, But you see this, like you, you, there's everybody's so stressed out for no good reason, really. Like patient care is patient care. You don't want to overload yourself. You will burn out so quickly and to skip steps, you know, and and rush through patient. It's not going to get you anywhere in the long run. You will get so many more providers and people in the chair when you're doing the appropriate standard of care. People recognize it. I recognize it as a patient in other facilities that I go into. So you don't want to skip those things. Like, yes, it's production. And yes, you'll dismiss your patient. You have to have an office protocol to get back to your question, right? So higher than 180 over 120, you have to consult the doctor immediately. I would say 90% of the time when I have a patient that has the blood pressure that's that high, either one, they're already on blood pressure medication that they don't take, they took themselves off of it, or two, they don't have a primary care doctor and they haven't been in a really long time. Those are typically the two scenarios that I personally see very often. So you want to make sure that your office establishes a primary care doctor that your patients can go to. Because a lot of times they'll walk out of your office if you do dismiss them. They'll either return back to their work. They're never going to come back to your office. Or they'll go to urgent care and they'll never really establish that long-term primary care. And I bet you if you have a provider in your community that you really have a close knit with, how long does it take to take blood pressure? Like, and find someone close in in location to your office, right? Just drive there six minutes, get your blood pressure taken. You know, you can offer, it depends on your your office. You can offer to stay later. Have the patient come back at five o'clock and you'll still see them. Make sure everything's okay. Like it'll still happen today, but just modified. You know, you, you need to make sure that the patient is safe. I had a patient, and I think I told this story before on a different podcast, but um, right when I graduated hygiene school, I was working at an office and my doctor must have been over, definitely over 65. And I know it's kind of old schooler doctor, um, did blood pressure. And, um, I told the doctor, I said, doc, he's got really high blood pressure. I'm not going to treat him today. I'm going to reschedule his appointment. And I don't even know why we feel obligated to tell the doctor this is a scenario. Like, are we not Very true. I don't get it. I don't get it. Well, right. I was so new. I'm mean, like fresh out of school. And 
he goes, it's just a cleaning. And I'm like, if it's just a cleaning, then you do it. This is what I said. I was so, pardon my language, ballsy. Like, I really was. I was like, if it's just a cleaning, then you do it. I love it. And he was like, he looked at his schedule. He, like, literally pulled up the schedule, and he was like, I don't have time today. You'll have to bring him back. I'm like, thank God, because this patient walked out of the office, and six months later, I was only in this office for six months. I couldn't handle it. Six months, I tap out. Like, I, if I, if it's not going to work for me, I can't be there any longer. Um, six months later, he did come back. He literally shook my hand. His six-year-old son is his other hand, and he was like, Tiffany, I had six stents placed since I saw you last. Because this was the story. Like, like you don't know. This is the first sign. Blood pressure doesn't hurt. It you have no symptoms. Right. There's nothing. So it's like periodontal disease, right? Most of our patients who have silent killer disease, they don't have bleeding gums because they don't floss. They don't clean in between their teeth. They sometimes only brush once a day, right? They don't even get to the gum line when they're brushing. So you're not going to see bleeding. Um, a lot of times, their first sign is a wiggly tooth, right? And so in cardiovascular patients, your first sign is like heart palpitations, stroke, cardiac arrest, heart attack. Like, you know, those are the things. And if you want to wait for that, but I don't want to be your, I don't want you to be my patient under my watch when this happens. Right. Right. So I think that's our goal as healthcare providers is really to kind of nail down um, these high risk patients and help them modify their lifestyle, modify modify lifestyle behavior changes, go over their medical histories in detail with them, even family history, right? So for yes. me, that's important because if I didn't go disclose my family history, you know, with uh, my providers, then I wouldn't have been able to have more preventative care. But I will say this though too, I would say as a survivor of a father from cardiac arrest, you have to relive those scenarios. So be mindful of that with these patients. So every time my providers go over my medical history with me, right, it'll say like mother, father, and like all their medical histories. And so I'll write for my father, cardiac arrest, pass at 40. And every single provider that I see that's new, was that they're like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. Your dad passed away at 40. Like you have to relive this scenario over and over and over again. And you can obviously see how traumatic that can be for me and probably other people too, that it's like, just walk on some eggshells, right? Be mindful. Like this is like someone's loved family member. They were really young. Like don't have to state obvious facts. But, you know, you can say, like, right. knowing what you know, you know, what have you been doing to change your lifestyle or change, you know, modify things in your life so that this doesn't happen to you or, you know, um, you don't have to rephrase, you don't have to relive the scenario over and over again. But that that's something that I didn't know until I was in those shoes. Um, and in dentistry, we don't really go into detail with family history as much as I think personally we should. Not as we should. Yeah, I agree a hundred percent, especially knowing what we know now and this evidence that just keeps on getting larger and larger and growing that we need now more than ever to ask those questions. And, and even if you're just focusing on the main connections that science is pretty Mm -hmm. well established for us, it's going to expand as time goes on. But we definitely need to be doing a risk assessment for our patients for all of the reasons that you've cited for the past 
45 minutes. Yeah. So like this is super important for us to be doing. I couldn't agree more. And um, because I knew we were doing this podcast, I actually was like looking to see like, okay, is there any like more data? Because for the longest time they were like, oh, periodontal disease is not associated with um, cardiovascular disease, right? There could be some linked um, factors, combined factors like smoking, lifestyle, whatever. But I was like, okay, let me see like what's new. And so I did, I want to share this with you. Um, I did find this and it's like um, a Harvard uh, study. And it said, of course, like periodontal disease increases the body's burden of inflammation, which involves an outpouring of immune cells that attack irritants and microbial um, invaders, which fosters healing over the short term. But long term, chronic inflammation is the key contributor of atherosclerosis, right? So I say this because a lot of people and like, right, we have this like, and I don't like to say it. And when it, when the first code came, first came out, uh, D4346, it was like, oh, it's a dirty mouth code. And like, what is, I'm like, what is that? Like, what is a dirty mouth code? I don't even understand. And so when I started practicing and this code came out, I was like, okay, patient has gingivitis. And so in my head now, and everyone's might be different, but I just say if somebody has 28 teeth, right, wisdom teeth have been extracted, if eight of your teeth are bleeding, eight, four, three, four, six, boom, like that's 30% of your mouth, right? So it's no brainer to me, like that's just how my brain thinks and operates. Um, and then I always want my patient to come back in two weeks because we know in 14 days that gingivitis should be reversed and totally healed. Otherwise you'll have chronic inflammation. And so I also get pushback in the office from that as well, because then it's like, okay, well then in two weeks time frame, the patient has already used up all their benefits. And I'm like, that's not my fault, right? I'm trying to help the patient become healthy. This is what the patient needs. I will go over with, you know, we'll go over with them, like what their out of pocket expectations be for the rest of the year. Or do you just want to have chronic inflammation for the rest of your life? Like these are your choices. Right. right. So, <laughs> and that's where it's, it's such a broken system. Yeah. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but no. I keep saying this over and over again. And I keep on getting pushback from, you know, if I post something on social media and say, we have a broken system, I'll get doctors that like come at me hard about that. No, you have to do <clears> what's <throat> right. And like, but, these, like, again, this is like a foundational, we know that gingivitis come back in two weeks reevaluation. And then some people are like, well, what is the reevaluation? Is it an actual like prophy? And I'm like, well, I'm doing gum tissue measurements again to make sure that everything is healthy. I'm evaluating the tissue. I am going to remove biofilm for you. We're here. Why would we not do that? Like we'll go over right, oral hygiene exactly. instruction to prevent this from happening in the future. <clears throat> yes, this is a full appointment. Like, yeah, and you can use the four nine nine code, yeah. the unspecified periodontal yeah. treatment, right? So, which is get that also is a little bit sketchy though too, because <clears throat> as I'm just thinking out loud, you know, it's four three four six, so it's technically gingivitis. So, and that's unspecified periodontal treatment, but you're still manipulating the gingiva. Yes. So. But that's like the best thing we have to use because our coding system sucks. Excuse my French, but it sucks. Yeah. And so, so same thing after SRP, right? Like SRP is done four to six weeks, patient comes back. And then it's like, but wait, insurance isn't covered periodontal maintenance until 90 days. Guess what? I'm really sorry. I don't pick your policy. And I just found out, how crazy is this? I just found out. I thought patients like pick their policy or whatever. I found out employers. Oh no. The employer picks yes. what mm -hmm. you their employees' benefits should be. So I'm like, okay, so why don't the, why don't, 
employers pick zero restorative and just all preventative and let's see how things go. Right. I don't understand. Like unlimited cleanings. I had one patient in the 11 years I've been practicing had a dental insurance that had unlimited cleanings. Unlimited. Unlimited. I was like, wow. And we and we have the evidence and we'll link this in the show notes. Cigna has that study that showed that when they had enrolled patients into more frequent periodontal treatments, mm-hmm. their medical costs were lowered. Yes. Their emergency visits were reduced. Yep. Everything was reduced because they had the periodontal treatment they needed. And and that's conventional hygiene. Like there's so many advancements in biofilm management today. And we could be doing salivary diagnostics to identify the pathogens that we know are tied to cardiovascular disease. And we can create an individualized, precise plan for that person to get them healthy. But, you know, there's so much red tape in there too, Tiff, with, you know, oh, my policy's not going to pay for that. Or the ADA doesn't really support salivary diagnostics yet. And, but it's like, if we don't test, how do we know? Like, we know they're scale and root planing resistant pathogens. So we can mechanically debride till the cows come home, but we're not going to get it all out. So, and if somebody's risk factor, like for instance, I had a patient who just had open heart surgery um, during COVID, mm-hmm. had stents placed. And then he comes in for me. He's out of, you know, he hasn't been in hygiene for a couple of years, got backed up. And I'm like, well, I don't have any report from your cardio. You probably need an antibiotic pre-med before we do anything. So he's like, well, I'm here. I travel far. Can, you know, what can we do? So he didn't have any allergies. I had a mox. We dosed him up. I assessed him full-blown perio. So I was like, let's take a salivary test and see him. Like, I want to enroll you into non-surgical periodontal therapy, but I want to make sure that we do this in tandem with your cardiologist I call the cardiologist. They're like, he hasn't come in since the surgery. He needs to come back in. I'm like, okay, let's get him back in. And I mean, he could have been down the road for a secondary event. Yeah. And that happens so often. If you look at the causation of uh, patients who have AFib and periodontal disease, and the um, likelihood of them having another cardiovascular event is so high. So when patients come in, and this happens all the time, I hear it. I'm like, oh, any medical conditions? They're like, no, right? Okay, perfect. Moving on. And then it's like, you go to take their blood pressure and they're like, oh, I have AFib. Like, they'll tell you, like, randomly. Later, yes, yes. And they just, like, brush it under the rug. Like, oh, I had a little heart attack, like, two months ago. I'm like, what? What is a little I heart had a attack? a mini stroke. Part of your heart tissue yeah. is dead now. Like, do you, who tells you you have a little heart attack? It's the same people that tell you have a little periodontal disease. Little periodontal disease on yeah. upper right tooth. Like, I hate it so much. But the study, I want you to look this up. It's called... Um, gum disease and heart disease, the common thread. And this is the one that I was like quoting earlier. Um, but when I was, cause this is a new, newer study is, um, it's happening right now, actually it's from February, 2021. But in this study, this is a cool part about inflammation and periodontal disease and gum disease. They're doing a study right now. And a doctor, Dr. Hasturk, and her colleagues um, are using unique compounds called resolvins that show promise for treating inflammation-associated diseases such as periodontitis and atherosclerosis. It's a topical liquid that helps resolve artery inflammation. And so that's called resolvins, R-E-S-O-L-V-I-N-S. 
And so they're using this right now. They're doing the study on rabbits and they're talking about like the atherosclerotic plaque and if it's more stable or less stable. And I think a lot of times like when we think about plaques too, like, right, like obviously there's dental plaque and, and we have our whole biofilm matrix and everything with that. And then you think about plaque that's in the arteries, right? It's like cholesterol. And I didn't know this until I like, went into more detail and I encourage everyone to like actually understand how cardiovascular and strokes happen because I didn't know this, right? So you actually have your artery, things can get piled into um, the inner lining of the artery. And then what happens is that piece falls off, that can go wherever, right? But then what actually happens is scab basically will form on the inside and that would be the blockage. So I didn't realize, and I'm like, oh, I always thought like you could just have like the thrombosis, right? But no, that's not always the case. And I'm like, wow, this is so interesting. So like, you never know when that's going to happen. And that's the, right. the crazy thing is like periodontal disease, we can see it coming. And I think that's the main difference. And with, um, we can clinically see it too, right? Like in the mouth, we can like pull out the cheeks and lips and everything. In your arteries, it's not that easily detectable, right? You can't just open up your arteries and like look at your bloodstream. Like, yeah, you can take blood from your sample, but that's not going to show you what's in the lining always. It's only going to show you what's traveling through it. So, right, right. I think that these are all like just red flag indicators with medical history, blood pressure, easy, easy things that lifestyle modifications that we can talk to our patients about that really, really, truly can make a difference. So I know it's like everyone thinks I'm like a guru with cardiovascular disease, but it's really just very basic things and something that I'm just like passionate about spreading in regards to going back to the basics and fundamental building blocks of what we learned as dental hygienists. I know like Melissa and I were talking about like right before podcast, but really just like hand washing, right? We talked about like, what did we learn first out of hygiene school? Hygiene, um, hand washing, number one. And then we said uh, infection control, number two. Yeah. And then number three was medical history before you could even treat a patient. Those are the things that like we went in detail about. So I think it's just backing up to that and like really understanding what we're doing in our role as prevention specialists, as dental hygienists in the community of medicine. Um, if we yeah. really want to be contributing a part of medicine, then we have to really start acting like it. Don't just sometimes take blood pressure. Sometimes 100%. don't take blood pressure. Like this is our standard of care and your office has to establish that. And I say, especially now more than ever, the hardest part is right. We're so short staffed. Like you hear this all the time. And it's like, now you have guest hygienists coming in the office. They don't know your standard of care, but how easy would it be to have a PDF the night before and be like, here's our standard of care for the practice. It's, it's not rocket science, right? Everybody knows how to practice hygiene. It's just a matter of like, what does your office do and how do we handle these situations? So that would be, I think, just prepare practitioners. But if we all did the same thing, we wouldn't even have to do that. Exactly. <laughs> if we just literally maintain the standard of care we were taught in school, we wouldn't even need an SOP, no, right? Because you, that. That is your you, SOP. you couldn't leave. Yeah, you couldn't leave the program without being clinically confident in all of these things. But it is the culture of dentistry that we walk into. And as baby hygienists, we're very uncertain and we just kind of go and, and conform to that culture. And if there's no blood pressure, 
we don't want to rock the boat. We're just so happy as a baby hygienist that somebody's employed me. Yeah. Right. And, and you have so much you're worried about with time management that that's like the first thing that whoosh, goes out the window, but it's one of the most important things. It's far more important than you flicking off a piece of dead petrified calculus. Yeah. And when I say that, please don't misunderstand that I'm not telling you to take calculus off. It is important to take calculus off, mm -hmm. but you need to make sure that you're doing these basic healthcare assessments to understand the risk for that person sitting in front of you. And, um, you know, I, I love how you say that we can, you know, we can't see inside the heart, we can't see what's going on, but we can see what's going on inside the mouth. And it's such a huge precursor to what could be happening to the heart. And one of the, the changes in verbiage that I've adopted is leaky gums. Mm -hmm. Because when you have bleeding, these pathogens are leaking into your bloodstream now and people get leaky gut. So like, it's a way to kind of like bring that together to them. And I also wanted to compliment you, Tiff, just as you were speaking about the interactions you have with patients, um, just that the, I can hear the work you've done with like motiva motivational interviewing techniques and understanding patients. And that's such an important piece of the puzzle too. We don't, we feel very invasive when we ask certain questions and, and it's not, that's not what it is. We've taken an oath as a healthcare professional that we need to ask these more difficult questions in some scenarios. And we need to learn the techniques to be able to do that, to keep yourself comfortable and your patient comfortable and gather the data that you need to help them. And so I just wanted to commend you on that. And I, I, I agree. And I thought about that too, actually. I thought about Miranda, like when you were saying, when we were talking about like the codes and the costs and finances and everything. And I think that's a part that we're missing in dentistry is like, if we took the time to do a, a you know, a patient interview prior to seeing the patient, we would understand the patient's yeah. needs a little bit better before we treat them or we can adapt our techniques to the patient um, and I say that because exactly like finances, I think is something that holds patients, um, away from dentistry and it shouldn't be scary. It should be well discussed, well talked about. These are our costs. There is no secret. And when you right. do that patient interview, okay, I see that you are allowed two hygiene appointments a year. Do you have funds to help balance this out if you need more? Like, like, mm -hmm. how are you going to pay for them? Right. Instead of go, instead of like using both of them up and now you have no money and now you're mad because we took all your money and like you have no more hygiene appointments for the rest of like the nine months. Right. Like that's not what we right. want. And so many times I've told patients that they really truly cannot financially afford dentistry. I'm like, go to the hygiene school. How much time do you have? You have a yes. day off? Yes. Go to the hygiene school. Right. It's $15. Go there. You know, it's $45 a quadrant. Go there. Like, it's so much more inexpensive. It'll be a lot of time. I'll be honest with you. Like you'll be there for four hours each quadrant, but it you'll be done. Right. And that will be your initial therapy. Right. And at least that'll be, and you'll have the best care. They're not going to miss anything. They need to pass. Right. So I tell patients all the time, like if you cannot truly afford dentistry, we will figure it out. That's my goal is not to rob you, take all your money, empty your pockets. Like our goal is obviously to get you healthy and figure out that right. solution. And if it's not me and it's not our practice, we need to find a practice that does suit you financially. Um, because so many people just come from so many different backgrounds. And like I said, I, I never judge my patients when they come in the chair, like financially, especially, um, I think it's crazy. You start asking your patients about like their medical history in more detail. I just have two other patients. One patient had a, a heart transplant and 
asked him like his scenario, right? He's like totally fluke, Um, super, super healthy guy. Um, And I say that because um, where we used to live in Fairfax, uh, Virginia, I have a patient who actually ran the heart and lung machine for open heart surgeries. And I don't ever remember what there's a ma- You can get a master's degree in this. Wow. You don't even have to go to med school. And I was like, what? And he was like, yeah, you just be in there. You're, you're running the heart and lung machine, like for the open heart surgeries. And so at Fairfax hospital in Virginia, they have the cardiology, uh, surgical center where the ceiling is glass, glass ceiling. And so everyone can watch and learn what's going on in the surgery. And he's like, you can come anytime. I never got the opportunity to go and, and I wish I would have, and maybe I, I still will. But, um, he was sharing that with me, um, that most patients, cause when he asked my, asked me about my dad, we back up, asked me about my dad. And he was like, was your dad uh, like super athletic? And I was like, no, absolutely not. Like he worked a lot. Like, yes. Like he was, I mean, he was the strongest guy, like on any softball field by far. But I mean, like my dad was a big dude. And so I was like, no, he was like the opposite. He was like, that's interesting because typically what we see is in younger patients between like 30 and 50, they're typically marathon runners are the patients that have heart attacks. And I was like, really? And this is him. This is like him verbatim, like talking to me, like in, you know, exchange of conversation in the dental chair. And he was like, yeah, because what typically happens is for patients that are obese and don't have a healthier lifestyle, their arteries will rewire themselves. And they will find another like way around to get blood supply to the heart. But with marathon runners, that something will just explode. And like, that is the end. Right. So I was like, wow, that's crazy. So he told me about that, but that was one of my patients with the heart and lung machine. And then my patient who had a full, um, heart transplant, his was like totally fluke. I, I don't remember exactly what happened, but it was the wildest, craziest thing. Um, it wasn't like a normal situation, but your heart also is a heart transplant recipient it only is going to last you so long, right? Like they have, they have time frames for this. So I can't even imagine being a heart transplant recipient either. You, you have like a, wow. you still have a short, life like an impending. Yeah. That's crazy. Um, Could you imagine? Yeah. How, how do you live your life like that? Like every day? I, I mean, maybe I'm not trying to say this in a bad way, but like maybe you live every day to your fullest. literally to the fullest yeah. knowing that, you know, that's on the horizon. I think so. And then my other patient, um, they had, a, they survived, uh, cardiac arrest and he was an older gentleman, um, probably over 65. And I asked him to share his story with me and he did. And, you know, he had said that he would, he, he, he says, I, I, I had it happen at the right place at the right time. And I was like, what, what do you mean? And he was like, I was like, Jim. And he was like, thankfully, I was at the gym because they have an AD. And if I wasn't at the gym, then I would have never survived. And so when you look at your surroundings, and I think just because of working as an EMT, especially when I'm on a plane, I didn't know this until I went to EMT school. So in the air, uh, I'm a licensed EMT. State is not state regulated. So as long as I have my EMT card, 
if they're like, is anybody on this plane? Like, that's me. <laughs> and so I'm like, always like, look around and like, okay, does everyone look healthy? Like, whatever that looks like, right? And I'm just like, always like, kind of like more nervous. And so I'm always like, okay, where's the first aid kit? And I'm like, looking around to see like, where's the AED in case I need to. And if you look how skinny those aisles are, Melissa, I'm like, yeah. what the heck am I ever going to do chest compressions? in here like in this tiny little aisle it's so small right so I just say too like as a professional even as a member of the community just whenever you're in an area with a lot of people a lot of space like look to see like especially areas where you go frequently like where is the AD um and if you're not comfortable with using it you find an instructor that's going to teach you really well and so I only teach people one-on-one right now um because I think that you get a better I don't know you get a better classroom style like some people don't learn and honestly i can't watch nine people do cpr correctly all at the same time like it's impossible i just can't so um i'll help a whole team that's fine i'll teach you guys all individually and then we'll work as a team because if you can't do it individually that's most likely when you're going to do it you know the chances of you actually having to do cpr in a dental office is very uncommon but it will, ha- it can happen, right? So it can happen. It certainly can have happen. to be prepared. Like typically it's at your house. Cardiac arrest typically happens at home. Um, but not all of us have an AD either. So yeah, right? yeah. Um, those are Definitely. important things to keep in mind is like your surroundings where all of your resources are. Yeah, definitely. Well, Tiffany, I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. First off, just for, you know, being as open and vulnerable and sharing your story, you definitely brought me to tears. And I appreciate understanding your why from that core is huge. And I know for a fact that this is definitely going to inspire some others to be able to take their experiences and flip it around and make it a positive and help other people. Because I think that's one thing that you hear from a lot of people that have had trauma or survived something similar to what you have in your life. They just want to do whatever they can to help prevent others from having to do it. I know that's Tabitha's approach with domestic violence mm-hmm. as well, with the tragedy of Kenzie. Um, so, you know, that's that's an area where if you're listening and you're like, how, like, maybe I'm feeling like totally bored and burnt out with hygiene, like look within and see if there's something that, you know, you feel really passionate about and see if there's a way that you could bring that into your practice. Um, We have, like you mentioned, Susan Cotton. There's so many wonderful examples of that. Um, And then also, too, I wanted to share um, a couple things. I want you to be able to share um, how people get in touch with you with Scaling Up Innovations and and how you can provide them with some training. And then also, we didn't get to talk about your Facebook group. No, I'm not just a hygienist. So (laughs) I want you to be able to just leave that with our listeners, how they can get in touch with you, how they could work with you. And then um, again, just thank you so much for being here and sharing with us. Thank you for having me. It's been amazing. I don't think I've ever had like pour out my heart like that before, but I think it's good. So um, my business is called Scaling Up Innovations. And so um, what I've established is really the new patient experience. Um, Kind of a lot of things that Melissa and I were talking about is really just go over the standard of care for your practice, which each practice can be different. We have different technologies, limitations, and how to fulfill your patient goals um, to the fullest so that we have the happiest patients, the happiest employees, the best team environment, um, and kind of establishing that for you because I know that most doctors have such a busy life. Um, And same thing with the office manager. You guys have a lot to tackle. So it's nice to have a good set of eyes with someone who is 
well-seasoned, been in a ton of practices, um, what's worked, what's not worked in the past. Um, I also do teach um, BLS CPR. And so um, I have that as an additive benefit to my business as well. And so my website is scalingupinnovations.com and my email is scalingupinnovations at gmail.com. Um, and so I'm pretty much Tiffany Dillon, I think, everywhere on social media now. I think I changed my name on everything <laughs> since we got married. I always have to like double check <laughs> and see. Um, and yeah, our Facebook group, I established this, I guess, like pre-COVID 2018. And so um, when I was um, working as a volunteer at a dental mission, um, a patient was like, excuse me, doctor, excuse me, doctor. And I was wearing a white lab coat and I didn't realize this patient was talking to me. And, um, I turned around and they were like, excuse me, doctor. And they were talking to me and I was like, oh, I'm not a doctor. I'm just a dental hygienist. And one of our colleagues overheard me and like literally she grabbed my arm and was like super tight. Like I was like, yes. And she was like, what did you just say? And I was like, no, I'm, I'm just a dental hygienist. And she was like, you are so much more than a dental hygienist. You're a healthcare provider. You're treating these patients. And like that put so much perspective to me. And that's kind of like where that sparked. So no, I'm not just a dental hygienist, right? For me, like now I'm a mom, I'm a wife, I'm an EMT, I'm a business owner, I'm an entrepreneur, I'm a healthcare specialist. There's so much more behind your dental hygienist that like, is not just a dental hygienist. We, we all come with so much more expertise behind us. So it's just a, I would say, a non-judgmental dental group where we post either CE classes, um, dental opportunities, um, just things that we can share within ourselves without having too much drama, I think. Um, it's pretty drama-free. Um, and yeah, just like a safe place for us to kind of just connect from all over. Um, and you guys are welcome to join. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. you. And we're like, <laughs> I know we missed Tabitha today and I'll link all of that information to connect to Tiffany in the show notes as well. So, um, that way you can reach out directly if you would like to work with Tiffany. But um, again, thank you so much. This was so insightful, so much great information. And just keep doing what you're doing, Tiffany. It's it's needed. It's incredible. And we can't wait to see baby pictures. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you. So until next time, keep on disrupting in your operatory. If you enjoyed this episode, please uh subscribe and leave us a review. And that's going to help us reach more and more uh, healthcare practitioners just like you. Until next time, keep on disrupting. Hey, thank you again so much for tuning into the Disrupting Dentistry podcast. We love to hear from you viewers and we love that you join us for our episodes. Please make sure to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. And leave us a review. We love reading reviews from all over the world. It's one of the things that actually makes all the hard work feel really worth it when we get to see which episodes you're enjoying or some feedback that you give. So leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or write something on our Facebook or our Instagram page. We'd love to hear from you. And thanks so much for listening. Keep on disrupting.